0: I got to tell you, it's been so fun not pastoring by yourself this past year, right? It's so, it's what a joy to um, do this co-pastoring thing together. Many of you know that this church doesn't have just a Single pastor, we are, we are co-pastoring, co-leading together. Uh, many would say that can never work. That's a shame because it is working so well. It's so fun to get to do ministry together. Uh, we, can, we can laugh, we can cry, but above that, we can, we can share the load. And as somebody who's been in ministry for a long time, that's, a, that's an unspeakable, wonderful thing to get to do, to walk through things and to, and to share the load together. So it's fun, brother. Looking forward to many more years to come. I want to share with you a um, message titled uh, "Top Two Not to Do." Top Two Not to Do, and the theme is is consecration. Many of you know the last few weeks have been a been a, a trying time in the life of our church as we've had to weather some storms. And um, speaking, of being able to share the low together, it was good to share the low with Jeff as as we walk through a very difficult time. And one of the things that my mind was brought back to, is not to rush past moments like that, but it's caused all of us to take a look inward and a look outward and and to have just a season of consecration before the Lord. And let's pray as we just transition into what I believe and what I know the Lord has spoken to my heart and I believe our collective hearts as well. Father, we just pause in this moment, um, confessing our utter and total dependence upon you. I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of getting to do that which has authenticated historical Christianity through the ages, the preached and declared Word of God. But Lord, I'm also keenly aware, apart from your anointing, apart from your grace, Lord, they're just words. But Lord, with your anointing, they break yokes. They bring life. They build up. And they tear down. So Lord, take my humanity... (laughs) Lord, use your great Holy Spirit within me, Lord, to convey what I believe. Jesus, as you walk amongst the candlestick called New Bridge today, that we would, we would hear your word. And not just hear it, but we would interpret it appropriately, and we would apply it in such a way that would bring honor to your great name. We ask this in his great name. Amen. Amen. What we have just gone through reminded me of, of two things that we must have as a body of believers, and of course, in our individual lives. The two things are purity and power. Purity and power must be the marks of a healthy believer and a healthy church. Purity and power. And we learn through our own lives, we all desire more power. Don't you, don't you wish you had more power in your life? but power emerges from purity not vice versa power is born out of purity purity must come first matthew 5:8 tells us in jesus in the beatitudes says god blesses those whose hearts are what pure for they will see god purity is born out of the heart not out of our exterior Shell, Not out of the exterior. The Bible speaks to us in 1 Corinthians 3 and Paul begins to teach us what's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ. You realize we are all going to be at the judgment seat of Christ. Not the great white throne, but his judgment seat. And it says in that moment when we pass from this life onto the next, we will be tried. Our works will be tried by fire. And the wood, the hay, and the stubble all that will be burned up, but that which will remain is the gold and the silver and the bronze. When you look at that passage, it, it, it speaks some truth to me in that, that the former things, the, the wood, hay, and the stubble, that's the superficial stuff of our life. If you will, that's the stuff that's actually above ground. The things that people see so oftentimes, so much that we base our life on, That we want people to look and we want our wood, hay, and stubble to look really good. We want to impress people with our wood, hay, and our stubble. But a life of superficiality is not the type of purity that God is after. In fact, the latter, the gold, the silver, and the bronze is that which is actually underneath the ground. The precious ore that scientists and miners covet is not laying around in superficiality. It's actually something underneath the earth. Precious ore is always found under the ground. Always purity is found in the heart. It is what is below the ground in your life that matters the most, not what is above the ground. Many of us give great attention and great awareness to the wood, hay, and the stubble, but in that day, that's going to be burned up. What really matters is what's under the ground, that which is in your heart. What governs your heart? The Bible teaches us that it's the, the, the thoughts and the intentions and the motivations of your heart and my heart. It is not so much the what you do, but it is the why you do it that is so important to Jesus. Not the what, but the why. This passage in Hebrews chapter 4 and 12 tells us one of the things that the Word of God does is not just to give us a list of things to do and a list of things not to do, but what the word actually is doing in us. For the word of God is living, in Hebrews 4, 12, and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as a division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and look at this part, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We realize that, don't we? That God is not so concerned about the what. In reality, he can make stones, cry out in worship. But stones can't have a why. God's concerned about the why inside of you. This truth is also found in the pages of the Old Testament. It's not just a New Testament reality. It is a Old Testament reality as well. God didn't suddenly go through some kind of metaphorical change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God has always been the same. There's no shadow of turning with him. He's concerned about your motivations just as he was Thousands of years ago to the prophet Jeremiah, when Jeremiah declared in Jeremiah 17, 10, but I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. But we could just pause there for a second. It's not just motives, but the secret motives. In other words, the word digs really deep. But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. So here we see the prophet clearly saying that what you do is very much connected to why you do it. And if why you do it is not pure and right, what you do is wood, hay, and stubble and only connected to the superficial realities of your life when God is after what is underneath, not what is on top of. You following that? This is what God is after. This is why the scripture lifts up one particular character for all of us to look at and to perceive and ponder as a mentor and a great testimony and a life to emulate. It is King David. King David. The Bible says, this is a man I want you to know about. He gives us great biographical detail about David and said, we need to be more like David. Who would agree? We need to be more like David. The adulterer, the murderer, the conspirator. Perhaps if I was picking somebody to emulate, I would not have gone directly to David. I might have picked a character like Joseph, right? Who the Bible also gives us a great deal of biographical information, but lifts up so much of him without much negativity. But yet the word lifts up David as an example. Why? Because God is after the purity of your heart. We know this in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance. Think of outward appearance in terms of wood, hay, and stubble. We judge by what we see with our natural eyes, which is always wood, hay, and stubble. Most of us are not able to walk out of this room this morning and go and locate where the gold and silver is buried. You don't see that naturally, but God sees that. He penetrates the superficial, and he goes deep, and he sees the heart. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. We find out that this is, the, this is what God is after most of all. First Samuel 13, 14, in this quest to find a man after God's own heart, the Lord declares it. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart as he communicates to the prophet Samuel. He's after your heart and he's after my heart. He's after your why. He's after my why. He's not after my what. Because in reality, I don't have that much to contribute to the whole scenario. My watch is not good enough. God's after my why. How do we grow then greater in our our pursuit of of this purity and power that must define you as a believer and us as a body? Do you realize that, right? There's nothing else more important than the purity that we keep. We hold fast to the purity of the gospel and the lives in which we live. Paul gets outright angry about this in the book of Galatians, when the Judaizers tried to attach works back to the gospel again. They were trying to get the Gentiles to become Jewish in order to truly become a Christian. Paul gets outright angry at that and says, You don't attach anything to the gospel. No rule or no regulation. It's about keeping things pure. Now, I don't know about you, but I have learned in life that knowing what not to do can be equally as beneficial as knowing what to do. Let I me mean, if you can say amen. If I can learn what not to do, by process of elimination, I may actually discover what to do. Do you know why that is? Because knowing what not to do oftentimes is born out of experience, right? Because I've actually done the wrong thing and I've experienced that it doesn't work. The first third of of my married life was simply learning what not to do. Everybody comfortable with that? First five to seven years of our married life, I learned a great deal about what not to do, which helped me to focus in on what to actually do. In other words, it's not necessarily just enough to say, be more pure, have more power. We all get that conceptually, but there are some very specific things that we are not to do in order to walk in greater purity and to walk in greater power. And the scripture does not hold this as a mystery to us, but lifts it up in front of us for us to look at and to see how to walk in this. The first one is found in Ephesians 4 in verse 30. And do not, everybody say, grieve. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The first thing you ought to do is what? Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that. The second thing, the top two not to do. First one, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Number two is found in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. It says, pray without ceasing and everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. It says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. So two things we are not to do, right? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit and do not quench the Holy Spirit. And if you can do and if we can do these two things, guess what's going to happen in our life? Greater purity and more power. How many of you want greater purity and more power? Then stop grieving the Holy Spirit. Stop quenching the Holy Spirit. And then you begin to step into that realm. Let me give you a quote. You may or may not want to write it down. I kind of liked it because I came up with it. In order to obtain purity and power, we must refrain from grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. That's the first premise. In order to obtain purity and power, we must refrain from grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. We will see that grieving directly speaks to purity and quenching directly speaks to power. Grieving speaks to purity, quenching speaks to power. Make a mental note of that and we'll come back in a moment. First, grieving the Holy Spirit. Grieving the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to grieve someone? It simply means to make them sorrowful. So often I love to reference marriage because I've been married, it seems like, all my life. It's the one experience that is continually perpetuating itself 24 hours a day, seven days a week as I continue to be married. So my married life is a great teacher to me, and I observe Marriage so often. And I have found again over time when I do something to grieve Michelle, she does what? She closes her heart to me. Connectivity is lessened and thus her influence in my life becomes smaller. Smaller. When I grieve her, when I do something to emotionally cause her to close down. We like to talk in marriage counseling about closing one's spirit like a clan. We've all done that in relationships, haven't we? We've said hurtful things. We've said mean things. How does the person typically respond? Withdraw. We close. You see, we forget so often that the Holy Spirit is not some force empowering the Jedi. It's not some force that Shirley MacLaine desires to amalgamate with one day in the heavenlies. It's not some ethereal power connecting all dark matter throughout the universe. The Holy Spirit is a person who has the capacity to be grieved. In other words, he is an emotional being that he can be grieved. Grieved, He can be silenced. He can be shut out. There are things in our life that we can do to cause the Holy Spirit to retract, even recoil back into the recesses of your heart. And His influence is minimized. Can I tell you, you don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I will share with you an experience. I'm not prepared to build a theological construct around, but I will share with you this experience that I had when I was 16 years old in high school. I was radically saved at 12. How were you radically saved at 12 years old? Well, I was. I was radically saved at 12 years old, had an encounter with the Holy Spirit that rocked my world and changed me forever. So I was, I was a zealot all the way through high school. I had my little New Testament in my back pocket. I was ready, man. I was on fire for Jesus I sometimes look back and I wonder how many people I actually turned away from the gospel and actually brought to the gospel. But I was on fire nonetheless. And I remember a friend of mine set me up on a blind date. He was convinced that I didn't have enough woman interaction in my life. I was quite content realizing I was not ready for that, but yet I said, okay, I will go along with this blind date. So I remember, as I was I was preparing myself for this blind date. 16 years old in my room, I was getting dressed. I had my um, Jordache jeans. I had my I had my um, Levi denim jacket. That was very important. Had to flush away between that and the members-only jacket. I was I was getting ready. I had my I had my um, high-top kind of shoes on with the tongue pulled out. I was ready, right? And I remember specifically reaching to put the stuff that I put in my pocket, and there was my New Testament that I always carried with me. But guess what? I said, you know what? I probably don't need to take my Bible to this little event. And I remember I held it in my hand, and I, as I said, as I'm, I'm going I'm to leave it here. And as I put it down, if God has ever spoken to me, this is what he said, okay, if you're going to put me down, I want you to feel what it's like in the absence of my presence. Now, I can't explain this. The only way I know to explain this to you is this. It's almost as if God withdrew his hand from my life in a moment, as if somebody put a vacuum cleaner into my soul and sucked out every ounce of the Spirit of God. Now, granted, I already gave a disclaimer. I'm not trying to build a theology around this, but it was my experience. And I remember in my bedroom actually being like sucker punched, just like this when God withdrew his presence from me. But as fast as it left, as fast as his presence returned, and I came back. Guess what I did? I put the Bible back in my pocket. Come to find out, the girl was a Mormon anyway, and it was not... (laughs) It just was not meant to be as I tried to witness to her. Actually, kind of a funny story. I was trying to witness to her in the back seat, and, I, and as I was trying to be chivalrous, and I was trying to get through, now granted, not the back seat by ourselves. Some of your brains went there. We were actually traveling. I was sitting next to her. My friend was in the front driving with his girlfriend, and I was sharing with her, and I found out she's a Mormon, and so I began to, you know, employ my reasonability to, you know, dismantle her Mormon faith. Um, she had a deer in a headlight look. We got to the place where we were going. I remember getting out and I said, Lord, how have I got myself in this? Lord, please forgive me. So I walked around and I, and I opened the door for her. She gets out. I move out of the way. I put my hand on kind of the door frame and she shuts the door right on my hand. <laughs> Just crushes all my fingers. Remember I said some of the greatest things in life is learning what not to do. I shall never put myself in that situation. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. You do not want to experience life without his power and presence inside of you. It's a very dark place. We forget he is a person. Then how is it then? if we seek not to grieve the Holy Spirit, how we grieve the Holy Spirit? How do we grieve him? What are the things that we can do to grieve the Holy Spirit? Let me paint this for you. How we grieve the Holy Spirit? Runaway flesh. Might be on your screen. How we grieve the Holy Spirit. Write this down. Runaway flesh. Everybody say, Runaway flesh. The Bible speaks to us in three areas where our flesh can run away from us. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. I actually like how the New Living Translation renders this in 1 John 2.16. Let's look at this together. 1 John 2.16. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. He lists these three things in perhaps some familiar vocabulary. Craving for physical pleasure, the lust of the flesh. I don't want to stay here very long, but obviously we live in a culture that plays on everything physical to satisfy the lust of the flesh. The cravings for what we see, the lust of the eyes, covetousness, seeing what the neighbor has, and we want it, so we'll go out and we'll sign up for the 60 days, same as cash, (laughs) and we'll buy it. Pride in our achievements and possessions, the boastful pride of life. You see, this is what happens when the flesh begins to run away from us. Note this, desire runs amok, runs amok. And when it runs amok, it becomes lust, and that's a runaway freight train. When desire runs amok, it becomes lust. And that becomes a runaway freight train. The challenge that we find ourselves is: how do we separate ourselves from our fleshly desires? How do we separate ourselves from the fleshly desires that are so potent and so powerful in our lives? and all of us live there, don't we? We live in the cauldron of being assaulted in our eye gate and in our flesh gate. and pray how do we live in this environment? I love the parable of the sower that's found in Matthew chapter 13. As Jesus goes into the parable of the sower, remember the right? The sower went out to sow, and he, and he begins to talk about the different ground the seed falls upon. And one of the, one of the grounds that he, that he speaks to is some of the seed fell amongst thorns. As it began to grow, it says the thorns grew, and it, and it, and it, and it, and it choked out the word of God in their life. It's one of the few parables where Jesus actually goes on to offer his interpretation of what the parable is speaking to. And Jesus teaches us that the thorns are this. They are the worries of this life and the allure of wealth. The worries of this life and the allure of wealth. In other words, those are the thorns. How many of you realize we all live in the thorns, don't we? You can't walk out the door. You can't pick up your electronic device. You can't turn the TV on. You can't pick up a magazine. You can't take an innocuous walk down the CVS aisle to buy some ibuprofen without just glancing to the left and getting assaulted by a whole array of magazines that would have been considered absolutely pornographic in the 1970s. We're assaulted continually. We live amongst the thorns, and we're continually being poked by the thorns. That's coming against the purity that the Lord has called us to walk in. Can I just be real with this this morning? This is, this is real. This is the world in which we live, yet we are called to be a people of purity in the midst of it. Well, how is that possible? I remember as a teenager, as I mentioned to you earlier, I was pretty radical in my days, and I used to beg God to deliver me from evil. That was the Lord's prayer, right? Lord, deliver me from evil, but I would substitute the word evil for this. Lord, deliver me from testosterone. Right? That's how I translated the word evil there. Deliver me. I beg God. I pleaded with God. Lord, I'm trying to be pure. I'm trying to be holy. But yet this enemy called testosterone won't leave me alone morning, noon, and night. Some of you guys are young or old enough. Maybe you can't remember that, but I'm still pretty young. I remember those days. But guess what? God never delivered me from it. It stayed there constantly. <laughs> How do we live and walk in purity when our flesh is being so assaulted continually? Many have tried over the ages. Perhaps you know your church history and you study the ascetics, you studied asceticism. Who's ever heard that word? Not aesthetics, but ascetics. It's a little bit different. Don't work on your aesthetics. This is ascetics. You know what asceticism was all about and still is practiced in some places today? Asceticism says this, it is a duality, if you will, that we got to somehow minimize the input of the flesh. It says that total abstinence from worldly pleasures is the only way I can make sure runaway lust doesn't happen. Total abstinence from earthly pleasures Sometimes, often, it comes; it manifests itself in extreme forms of self-denial. Extreme forms to minimize the impact of the flesh. Some, in the ascetic movements, would, would actually mortify their own flesh. They would inflict pain upon themselves. They would self-flagellate. They would beat themselves. They would starve themselves to the point of almost being emaciated. They would lay on beds of nails In the thought that if I can punish and I can weaken and I can literally destroy the flesh, that will set me free to live a pure life. Well, guess what? Do you think it worked? Of course it doesn't work. It never works to do that. Why doesn't it work? Because the same God that tells me to flee youthful lust is the same God that tells me that I am fearfully and wonderfully made, that in this earthen vessel is a treasure, that I was made in the, imago Dei, in the image of God, and not to destroy this, but to nurse it and take care of it and cherish it. It's a conflict. But is it really? We're a new creation with a new nature. Part of the very thing that Jesus does is he defeats the tyranny of the sin nature in your life. When Jesus comes in, sin is defeated. Do we believe it or do we not believe it? Yes, I believe it. That means what? I am no longer subject to that slavery anymore of runaway passions that I am now free from that I'm a new creation. How do we have the freedom, the freedom, and still walk around in the flesh? Maybe I'm preaching to myself here, but it's a key to our purity. How do we appropriate this new nature we have in Christ and not grieve the Holy Spirit? We know the law won't work. We know asceticism won't work. Well, can I tell you what works? The Holy Spirit's fruit works. In particular, the fruit of self-control. The fruit of self-control. Oh, we gloss over the fruits of the Spirit found in Galatians 5, because we want to jump right to the the ooey-gooey, the white stuff in the middle of the Oreo, which are the gifts of the Spirit. We gloss right past the fruit, but the fruit are essential in our virtuous, pure life before the Lord. We can't do it apart from the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to this. The fruit of self-control allows you and allows me to navigate to navigate the earthly pleasures of life without risking runaway flesh. That's what the fruit of self-control does for you. It kind of looks like this, that I can actually enjoy two slices Of Pizza Hut, meat lovers, stuffed crust, saturated in marinara sauce. I can actually enjoy two slices of that without having to eat two mediums in one setting. (laughs) Self-control actually works in those environments. You see, yes, we know there are black areas. There are specific things not to do. But here's the reality. Most of life is lived out where? In the gray And it is the fruit of the Spirit, specifically the fruit of self-control, that enables you and enables me to navigate the gray of life. Now, this may actually be worth writing down. You are only as free as the fruit of self-control permits you to be. Let that just wash through you for a second. You're only as free as the fruit of self-control permits you to be. Now think of it this way. You can write this down. The less we grieve him, the less we will grieve him. The less we grieve him, the less we will grieve him. Greater purity brings greater power, which brings greater purity. Do you see it? Greater purity brings greater power, which in turn brings greater purity. And guess what happens? When this starts circling... Circling water can create something very powerful called a vortex. And when a vortex is created, it is just inescapable. You can't get out of a vortex. You don't want to get caught in a vortex because it begins to swirl. Water begins to displace itself. It begins to create this unbelievable suction when you begin to create this in your life. And you begin to walk in greater purity. This is why we must keep growing in our relationship with him. Really no different than any other, any meaningful relationships in our life. The more I seek not to grieve the Holy Spirit, the more power I will enjoy and the less I will grieve him. And guess what happens? You are changed and I am changed from glory to glory to glory. Glory. In reality, runaway flesh becomes an impossibility for the believer who is walking in the spirit. Because Paul teaches us emphatically, it's not a suggestion, it's not an option. He says, if you walk in the spirit, you will not gratify the lust of the flesh. Not might or could or perhaps. If you walk in the spirit, you will not gratify the lust of the flesh. This is why we keep growing and keep moving. And it's not about abstaining from earthly pleasures. I like pizza. I like nice things. It's okay to like nice things. God actually made a lot of nice things for us to enjoy. The whole created world was made for our pleasure, was it not? That he gave us dominion over. We are meant to enjoy things. We are meant to desire things. It's when that desire is converted to a craving and a lust is when things get deadly for us when we begin grieving the Holy Spirit. But the fruit of self-control growing in your life will prevent you from doing that. How, you be, how, how are you pure? Grow self-control in your life by not grieving the Holy Spirit. Pleasing God becomes our greatest desire. You see, that was the David difference. Wasn't it? We talk about David being exemplified before us as a role model. Remember, the adulterer, the murderer, the conspirator. Be like David. Because God was somehow able to look past all the what's, but he saw something in David he, could, he liked. Because David loved God. He lo- his desire was really for him. I was often perplexed by David's prayer in Psalm chapter 51. You remember, that's the prayer that David prayed after his sin with Bathsheba. Very powerful prayer. If you're feeling bad about something, read through that and pray that. But There's one little verse in there that David says, Lord, against thee, in King James, against thee and thee only have I sinned. I used to read that and think, well, yeah, I mean, obviously he sinned against God, but did, I, did not he sin against Bathsheba? Did he not sin against Uriah had him murdered? Did he not sin against the poor child that died? Did he not sin against the entire kingdom? And, and all those he had to rope into the conspiracy? But yet he says, thee only have I sinned. Because David understood something. That unless we understand our sin is only against God and God alone, we'll never ultimately be motivated to lay it down. Our sin is an affront to God and God alone. In other words, it plays out this way. I endeavor to be a good, godly husband not because I simply like her. Because sometimes I don't. And sometimes she doesn't like me. And sometimes we argue, in other words, the value that I place in her is not enough to hold me into a pure relationship, to keep my marriage. But him, on the other hand. If I desire to please Him, to love Him, to honor Him in all things, to do all that I do as unto Him, think what happens. That every affront, everything that I do to grieve somebody else, ultimately is first grieving the Holy Spirit. And that simple recognition of that truth will enable us to walk in greater purity. All sin is ultimately affront to God. Purity is born out of a desire to please the Father. That's what it's about. Purity comes from the heart. It can't be contrived. Purity is born out of a desire to please Him, not an imposed moralistic ethic or code from the outside. We can all make our wood, hay, and stubble look nice. You can manicure it. But in reality, God's after what's underneath, not what's above. Now, some of you are scared because you realize I told you two things not to do. And we spent the bulk of the time dealing with the first one. There is one more we're going to hit on very quickly. It's not that it's less important, but it's recognizing that the power emerges out of purity, not vice versa. The second admonition in Scripture not to do is quench the Holy Spirit. I'm going to run through this very quickly. What does it mean to quench something? It means something defined to stifle or to suppress or to limit something, to limit power. Remember I said, grieving speaks to purity, quenching speaks to power. It's as if I'm going to choke off something and limit its influence in my life. Question, how we quench the Holy Spirit? I'll boil it down to one very simple answer. How we quench the Holy Spirit. One word, ready? Religion. Everybody say religion. Religion will quench the Holy Spirit quicker than anything. Colossians 2 Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. High-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking. That's what religion is. Nonsense. In Mark chapter 7... We see a conversation happening between the Pharisees. The Pharisees have have, have come to Jesus, and they are really disgruntled, and they are really upset because the disciples are eating before they wash their hands. And they are ticked off about it. You see throughout your New Testament the continual issues that Jesus had with the Pharisees. But I guarantee you, each and every one of us, if we lived during that time, we would be attending the first church of the Pharisee. We were. We would. That was, the, that was the conservative branch. That was the evangelical church of the day, if you will. Were the Pharisees. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes, and others that existed, but it was the Pharisees that were going to toe the line for the faith. And look at what Jesus responds as they're coming. Your disciples haven't washed their hands. They haven't kept up with their ritual purity. Jesus says, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. This is Mark 7, 8. You hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things that you do. They lost the commandment of God, and they're only concerned with the rules and the, and the regulations. That's what religion seeks to do. In fact, in a, in a very careful study, and probably not Not even a careful study. You look at the three years of the ministry of Jesus codified in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You find out for three years when he began his earthly ministry, after he emerged from fasting in the wilderness, facing off the enemy, he spent most of his time trying to deliver his people from what? Religion. Religion. Well, Jesus came to bring the gospel to the lost. Yeah, he did. But his first mission was to his own people to do what? To deliver them from religion that had incapacitated their spirituality. That's what Jesus was doing. And can I tell you something? Jesus is still doing it. He still comes to his own. Are we his own? Have we been grafted into the vine? Yes, we are the people of God, grafted in the vine. The same thing Jesus did for three years, he's still doing today. He's doing the same thing today he did yesterday. Trying to set us free from what? The encroaching kudzu of religion that wants to sneak in and introduce the doctrines of man and traditions of man, which cause he knows the enemy knows it will quench out the power of God in his church. He's still doing it. He's still calling apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists to help to rid the body of Christ of religion. Second Timothy 3:5, and I promise we're landing. They will act religious in that day, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Religion seeks a form of godliness, but in the form It denies the power. If you will, it's the wood, hay, and the stubble. It's the outward appearance of religiosity. it's It's the whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones the Bible speaks of. Oh, we can look religious. We can look holy, but in reality, we are necrotic matter inside in our heart, and that's what God is after in you. That's what God is after in me to make us pure and to make us holy. Religion is the antithesis of relationship. Religious spirit is the antithesis of a relationship with Jesus. Religion seeks a list. Jesus seeks a relationship. If you're going to boil it down to something very simple in a a small bite that we can masticate and chew up and swallow, it's simply this. Religion seeks a list. Jesus seeks relationship. Anytime you want a list, Jesus will never give you a list. You want to hear Jesus' list? This is Jesus' list. It's found in Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, this is his list. You ready? You must love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally more important. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the list Jesus gives. What is it? Love him with all of your heart. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our mouth, our actions, are motivated by what is in our hearts. The thoughts and intentions and motivations. That's what the Holy Spirit is after. So the question for all of us, in worship team, you can come on back up. The question we must ask ourselves is are you growing in your relationship with Jesus? See, the tendency of religion is for me to give you a list of things or just all these actions for you not to do, and then you're going to be pure. The Bible teaches us something very contrary to that. He said that's the very thing that will enslave you and will quench. What Jesus offers is relationship. The less you grieve Him, the less you will grieve Him. Do you get that? The less you grieve Him, the less you will grieve Him, the less you grieve the great Holy Spirit, then the more power you're going to experience in your life and the more you're going to walk in purity of motives and hearts and intentions. Even when the motivations and intentions of your heart are misinterpreted by others, they will never be misinterpreted by Him. Isn't that great? Because you will travel the course of your life. And as a wise philosopher once said, no good deed goes unpunished. And that's true. People will always, not always, that's a cynical view of things. People will often misjudge your thoughts and your intentions and your motivations. But there's one person who won't. And he's the one person you want on your side above all else. The one person on that day you want to stand in your defense. The one person in that day you want to vindicate you is the one who is able to do it. Amen. Amen.